0: Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 18 through 23. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. The grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our god endures forever hey everyone so glad that you can join us for worship today you know one of the types of stories that i love hearing the most at our church are the stories of all the people that are genuinely curious about Christianity and are checking it out. And I've personally dialogued with some of you, and if I haven't personally talked with some of you, your friends have told me about you because of how happy they are for you. And I want you to know that you're at the right place and you're at the right time because in this sermon, this sermon in particular is for you in addition to the sermons uh, after this, because what we're doing in the sermon series is that we're taking a look at some of the questions that Jesus has for us. Now I know that usually the tables are turned where we have all these questions for God, and questions about God, but I think an equally helpful way of trying to understand Christianity is by taking a look at some of the questions Jesus has for us. And it turns out when you take a look at the Bible, there are a lot of questions that Jesus has for us. And personally, I love good, good questions, because the answers to these good questions reveal a lot about who we are and what we're like. So let me give you an example of this. In my community groups this past week, we started out with some icebreakers. And uh, some of the questions were things like, if you could have dinner with two people in the world, who would they be? And depending on how you answer that question, it reveals a lot about who you are and what you're like. Or if you had to delete every app on your phone, save for three, which apps would they be? And so if you answered Google Maps, probably reveals that you're bad with directions. If you said Yelp, it probably means that you're a foodie. If you answered Spotify, it probably means that you love music. And so the way that we answer questions reveals a lot about who we are and what we're like. But it all starts with, A good question. And today I want to ask you a question, arguably the most important question anyone could ever ask. And no, it's not who shot JFK. No, it's not is Mars habitable. It's not whether there are alien life forms in the universe. But I want to ask you an even more important question. And that question is, who do you think Jesus is? Or to phrase it the way that Jesus did, who do you say I am? And the reason why I think that this is arguably the most important question anyone could ever ask is because the way that you answer this question could potentially change your life and it could potentially change your eternal destiny. So I want to ask you again, if someone were to ask you the question, who do you think Jesus Christ is? How would you answer that question? Well, as we take a look at our passage today to help us answer that question, I want us to read verse 18 to 19. And in these verses, it says, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who did the crowd say I am? They reply, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. So, the reason why Jesus asks this question is because there's a lot of confusion about his identity and who he really was. So, take for example the Pharisees. The Pharisees thought that Jesus was a heretic and the devil, the Romans thought that Jesus was a political insurrectionist. The Jewish community was hoping that Jesus was a political liberator. So there was a lot of confusion as to who Jesus was. By and large, most of them thought that he was John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets of long ago. And what I find so interesting about that response is that John the Baptist, Elijah and the prophets, they were all good teachers with good teachings, but they were not God. And similarly, if you ask a modern person today, who do you think Jesus is? Most modern people today will say the same thing, that Jesus was a good dude, good teachings, good teacher, but he wasn't actually God. And so my question to you today is, so who do you think that Jesus really is? The theologian A.W. Tozer once said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So let me ask you again, Who do you think Jesus Christ is? Well, this is who Bono thinks that Jesus is. And yes, it is the Bono from U2. Uh, In an interview that he gave, he says this. The secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. At this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, oh my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, well, he's a complete nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. So what Bono is saying is that contrary to popular opinion, the idea that Jesus can be a good teacher, it just doesn't fly. He, he really is Lord or he's a lunatic. And where he's borrowing these terms is from the Oxford Don C.S. Lewis. If you're unfamiliar with Lewis, uh, he was a professor of literature at Oxford. And at the time when he was teaching there, he was not a Christian. Uh, But some of his closest friends, a group called the Inklings, um, they would often talk to him about God. And one of those people was was actually J.R.R. Tolkien. And eventually, C.S. Lewis did come to believe in God and became a Christian. And after he became a Christian, Lewis basically said that when we think about who Jesus is, we're left with three options. And this is his famous trilemma. He's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. So he, he really is Lord, or he's God or he's a pathological liar that has conned billions of people or he's a lunatic who shouldn't receive our worship but should receive treatment for his uh, insanity. Now when you think about liars, just because you're a liar, it doesn't mean that you're a lunatic. Okay. So if if a liar's life is in danger and they're going to be tortured and suffered to death, most liars are smart enough to give up that lie. But Jesus, when we take a look at his life, he wanted to suffer and he wanted to die. And so chances are that Jesus wasn't a liar. So what we're left with is now two options. He's either Lord, he really is God, or he really is a madman and raging lunatic. But we can't say that he's just a good guy and a good teacher because of the ramifications of his ministry and his life. And so Jesus says, I know what other people think about me. But he says to the disciples so who do you think that i am and in verse 20 he says but what about you he asked who do you say i am and peter answered god's messiah and the word messiah basically means the king to end all kings in other words he's the king of kings he is god himself so peter is making this profession of faith as to who Jesus really is, that he really is God. But what's so interesting is that after Peter makes this profession of faith, this is what Jesus says in response in verse 22. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So in these verses, Jesus ironically says that he must suffer and that he must be killed. Now, what kind of person, let alone a king, wants to suffer, wants to be murdered? Either they're really a weird kind of king, or they are they are a madman and a lunatic. So let me try to explain to you from a Christian perspective why Jesus wants to suffer and why he's glad to die by explaining to you the shopping cart theory. Now, I don't know if you've heard the shopping cart theory before, but about four months ago, it took Twitter by storm. And the theory goes like this. Uh, We've all pushed a shopping cart before at Target or some other retail store. And after we push it, the right thing to do is to return the shopping cart to where it belongs. Outside of dire emergencies, there are no situations where we should not return the shopping cart to where it belongs. And so it's the objectively the right thing to do, but it's not only the right thing to do, it's a very easy thing to do. It doesn't really inconvenience us at all. But here's the thing, even though it's the right thing to do, there are no rewards for returning a shopping cart. No one's gonna give you a present, no one's gonna give you money. Uh, so you really have to do it out of the goodness of your own heart. Furthermore, there are not only no rewards, but there are no repercussions. So if you don't return the shopping cart to where it belongs, no one's gonna yell at you, there's no punishments, there's, there really are no fines. You really, again, have to do it out of the goodness of your own heart. And so the shopping cart theory, according to whoever made it up, basically is a very good litmus test for who belongs in the morally good category, and who belongs in the morally not so good category and study after study shows that, you know, when someone is watching us or there's a camera uh, or there are repercussions and rewards, we're more obliged to, we feel more obliged to do the right thing. But when those factors are eliminated, we don't really feel obliged or obligated to do those things. And so again, the shopping cart theory becomes a good litmus test for who belongs in the morally good category or the not so good category. And yet, if I'm very honest, at least with myself, I don't know about you, but there are many occasions where I have not returned the shopping cart to where it belongs. Now, why is that? Well, let me give you a metaphor uh, with the shopping cart once again. From a Christian perspective, the reason for that is because our hearts uh, tend to go astray. So I don't know if you've ever pushed a shopping cart before with one bad wheel. It's the worst because no matter how how hard you try to push it straight, it keeps wanting to go astray. And what the Bible would say is that we are that shopping cart, and our hearts are like that one bad wheel. Even though we want to push it straight, there's a tendency for it to go astray. Now, over millennia, different philosophers and thinkers have tried to try to uh, understand uh, rationally and logically and, and, and explain why our hearts tend to go like you know, this way. Uh, The late Christopher Hitchens, for example, in his book, God is Not Great, he uh, talked about morality from a scientific perspective. And he said that the reason why we tend to be immoral is because we're not evolved enough and the prefrontal lobes of our brains are not developed enough. That's why we act immorally or sort of Neanderthal-ish rather than morally the way that we ought to. But from a Christian perspective, the reason why we act this way, our hearts are sort of like that one mat wheel, isn't so much from a scientific perspective, but a spiritual perspective. And the reason why we act this way is because of something called sin. Now, even if you don't believe or really understand the concept of sin, you do understand the concept of right and wrong, do you not? You understand that returning a shopping cart is the right thing to do. Uh, and not returning it is the wrong thing to do. So we understand these concepts of right and wrong. The question is, where did you get this understanding of right and wrong? Where did that moral compass exactly come from? This is what Peter Kreft, a philosopher at Boston College says. Kreft says, what are moral laws? Unlike the laws of physics or mathematics, which tell us what is, The laws of morality tell us what ought to be. But like physical laws, they direct and order something, and that something is right human behavior. But since morality doesn't exist physically, there are no moral or immoral atoms or cells or genes. The very existence of morality proves the existence of something beyond nature and beyond man. Just as a design suggests a designer, Moral commands suggest a moral commander. Moral laws must come from a moral lawgiver. Well, that sounds pretty much like what we know as God. Whenever you appeal to morality, you are appealing to God, whether you know it or not. You're talking about something religious, even if you think you're an atheist. So what Kreft is saying is that we all have a moral compass innate within us. And the reason why we have that is because we've been made in the image of a moral God. Now, the problem is our moral compass is very uncalibrated and we tend to do immoral things. Now, in other religions, they would say, that's okay. As long as you do more good things than bad things, you'll get paradise. You won't be reincarnated to a rat. You'll get Nirvana, you'll get, you know, whatever. But in Christianity, that's not the way that it works. It's not about doing more good things than bad things. In Christianity, we either have to get a 100% on the moral exam or we fail. Those are it. There is no, God does not grade on a curve. And the problem that poses for us is that, I don't know about you, but I haven't lived a moral life. I would fail that exam. And I'm assuming you would as well. But the good news of Christianity is this, and this is what the gospel is, rather than failing us or canceling us, Jesus is canceled on our behalf. So it's as though he lived our life, and what he gives to us is that 100% on the moral exam, as if we had lived his life. And that's why Jesus had to come, that's why he had to suffer, that's why he had to die, to die in our place. And what we get instead is forgiveness and new life. You know, I find it very interesting that the way that Jesus asks the question, uh, who do, the way that Jesus asks the question is, who do people say I am? And that phrase, I am, is very significant in the Bible because that phrase is pervasive and reverberates throughout Scripture. So when Moses has the encounter with the burning bush on Mount Sinai, and he meets with God, he says to God, who are you? And what does God say? I am that I am. And when we fast forward to the pages of the New Testament, Jesus also has seven famous I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so when Jesus is also making those I am statements, he's basically saying, I am God in the flesh And so when Jesus asks the question, who do you say I am? What he's alluding to is the fact that he is the great I am. The great I am who has come to die in our place. And you know why that is so, so, so significant? We would never know how much God loves us until we knew what he was willing to give up for us. If you talk to any Mormon or any Muslim, how how do they really know their God loves them? They may have created them, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they love them. We only know how much people really love us based upon what they're willing to give up for us, what they're willing to sacrifice for us. And in Christianity, God gives up his own life for us out of his own love for us. Now, if you're not religious at all, what you what you give your life to you might be work. But you know what? Even though you sacrifice your life for your work, your time, maybe you even sacrifice your family to be with your work as your functional mistress. Do you not know that your work will never die for you? You might love work, but your your work does not love you. Furthermore, you are replaceable. But what we have in Christianity is a God that loves us so much that he would come and sacrifice himself for us. And if God gives his life for us, you know what that means? We cannot hold back our lives from him. And so the way that Jesus ends his story is in verse 23, and he tells his disciples, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Now this sounds like a terrible Terrible recruitment strategy, because right before Jesus says, come follow me, right before this, he says, you first have to deny yourself and then follow me. And as modern hearers, when we hear the word deny, we hear you can't have any fun. You have to live some kind of ascetic life. And as a result of that, Christianity can come across very unappealing and very unattractive. And I want you to know that nothing could be further from the truth. If anything, in Psalm 16, at the very end of the ver- uh, end of the chapter, the last verse, it says, At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, I will smoke a cigar to the glory of God. So when Jesus says that we have to deny ourselves, he's not saying we have to deny ourselves of any fun. So what does he mean when he says that we have to deny ourselves? Deny ourselves of what? Well, contrary to Mormons, it's not caffeine, thankfully, so we can drink our coffee. It's not bacon like the Jewish community. What do we have to deny ourselves of as Christians? Well, what we have to deny ourselves of is anything that gets in the way of our relationship with God. Okay, and we all have those things, whether it's good things or bad things. I'll give you a more tangible example. Right now, it's mid-September. As a sports junkie, this is a very dangerous time of the year because baseball is happening, football is happening, and basketball is happening simultaneously. And if you do fantasy sports, it's even more dangerous because those things take and consume hours of our day. And if we are saying yes to something, we are saying no to something else. And the thing that we typically say no to because of time is our relationship with God. This is one of the reasons why I usually limit my intake to just one sport because there isn't that I don't have enough time in the day to maintain my relationship with God in all these different sports. For others of you, it could be some kind of entertainment, YouTube, social media, binging on shows or or movies. For others of you, it could be video gaming. For others of you, it could be an excessive amount of golf. For others of you, it could be a toxic relationship that you should probably not be in if it's inhibiting your relationship with God. My point is that we all have things, we all have things that get in the way What are those two or three things for you and are you willing to reduce the amount of intake? Are you willing to give it up? Are you willing to deny yourselves of those things for something that is far, far better? This is what Tim Keller says.
1: People sometimes
0: say to me, I would like to be a Christian, but will I have to do this? Will I have to give up that? Will I have to pray and change my views? And certainly questions like this have legitimacy, because you do need to consider what it will cost you to become a Christian. Jesus himself tells us to count the cost of discipleship. But I'm afraid many people want to negotiate the cost rather than count it. That is, they are willing to give up things, but they won't give up the right to determine what those things are. They want to be in a position to do ongoing cost-benefit analyses on various kinds of behavior, which keeps them in the driver's seat on the throne of their life, as it were. I once heard a Bible preacher put it like this, when it comes to following Jesus, the hardest thing to do is to give in. So what are those two, three things in your life that you need to deny yourselves of that get in the way of your relationship with God. We all have those things. What are they for you? Now, I want you to consider this. If God was willing to give up his everything, including the price of his one and only son to be with you, are there not things that we should be willing to give up to be with him and to have a more meaningful, healthy relationship with him? And for those of you who are seekers and skeptics in our community, again, we're so glad that we're, you're here. And if I could sort of tie a knot on this entire sermon. Why does Jesus' identity matter so much? Well, the reason why it matters is because his identity is tethered to our salvation. And so Romans ten nine it says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you declare it with your mouth and believe it in your heart, you will be saved. And so that is something that you can do right now, wherever you are, by simply declaring it with your mouth and truly believing in your heart, you too will be saved. And for those of you who are not quite there yet, what I want you to do is to simply trust the process, okay? And trust the one who's in control of the process. So, and I'll close with this final analogy, If you're building a house from scratch and you have this grandiose vision of, you know, having a quartz island top where you want certain paintings and what the finished product will look like, what you first have to do is hire a contractor. Contractor will dig up the ground, put the foundation in, build up the frames, and what you really have to do as they are doing all these things is you have to trust the process. As one beam goes up, another beam goes up. You really have to just trust the process as you're going through this. And similarly, uh, as you hear a sermon every week, another beam goes up. As you ask questions, as you dive into our community, just trust the process and God will be with you. Uh, And we are here for you as well. But trust the process that God is taking you on because we all have different journeys. Let's pray together.